If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday we covered a lot of ground, but I want to mention just two parts or two passages of what we looked at by way of review. The first has to do with Jesus calming the storm. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were in a boat at nighttime going over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We read a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And I argued last Sunday that the issue was not that they didn't think or that they thought he couldn't do anything about it. The issue was they, they thought he wouldn't do anything about it. They didn't care enough about them to do something. They had already seen him caring for those who were possessed by evil spirits, those who were sick, that he cast out these evil spirits. He healed those who were sick because he cared for these people, but doesn't he care about his own disciples? The second passage that I want to just mention by way of review has to do with the casting out of the legion of evil spirits from a man. This is from the beginning of chapter 5, verse 3. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones." A truly heartbreaking description of an individual cut off from society, living among the dead, among the tombs, crying out night and day and cutting himself with stones. Jesus engages the spirit, the evil spirit who says his name is Legion, because there are many. The Roman Legion was between three and 6,000 men, military unit size. And the evil spirit asked Jesus, you know, don't torture us which is really ironic because that's what they had been doing to this man. But they ask, they beg, in fact, to be sent into a herd of pigs, 2,000 pigs. And Jesus gives them permission. They go into the pigs. The herd rushes down the steep uh, bank into the sea, and they drown. The people in the region are told about this twice, by the way, in the short passage. They're told about what had happened, and they come out, and they see the man who had been living among the tombs, who had been possessed, He is sitting there. He's clothed, which implies that he generally wasn't when he was possessed. He's there and he's in his right mind. And the result is they are afraid. And they plead with Jesus to leave their region. As much as I may struggle with Jesus allowing the evil spirits to cause the deaths of the pigs, it becomes clear to me at least that Jesus cared more about the man and that the people of the region cared more about the pigs. In both miracles, we see not only the power of Jesus, which I think is what people tend to focus on, but his great care. Psalm 32.10 tells us, the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. In our first hymn today, Holy, 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 
We sang merciful and mighty. Yes, Jesus was mighty and he could, in fact, cast out these evil spirits, but he was also merciful. He cared for this man. We have to ask ourselves, which would we rather have in our lives, the Lord's power or the Lord's care? Someone reminded me after listening to the sermon online of the hymn, Does Jesus Care? It's in our hymnal. It's not a hymn that we've sung, I think, in a long time. There are four verses, and in each of the verse, the, the author is asking, does Jesus care in a particular situation? Does Jesus care when my heart is pained? The second verse, does Jesus care when my way is dark? with a nameless dread and fear? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed? Then finally, does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? The chorus, the refrain is this. Oh yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. This hymn, by the way, is based on the passage in 1 Peter 5. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. This theme of Jesus being one who cares continues in our passage today. In Mark 5, verses 21 to 43, we have two miracles, but one is in the midst of the other. The story begins and is interrupted. A miracle takes place, and then we have... The first miracle happening second. Look, if you would, beginning at verse number 21. When Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was, still, while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Just some things to note here. Jesus returns to the Jewish side, the western side of the Sea of Galilee. He had been on the eastern side, the Gentile side, and now he comes back. Uh, Luke, in telling the story, says that he returns. So we can assume he came back to the town of Capernaum. There is a large crowd that gathers. That's not unexpected, but it is an important part of the story, as we'll see in a minute. Jairus comes to Jesus. He is one of the rulers of the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue was a person, an official who was appointed by the elders of the community to look after the place where they met, the synagogue, its contents, and the arrangement of worship. That is, how, what would be read, uh, the, um, the organization, if you wish, the liturgy that would be involved in public worship. In short, Jairus is a man of some standing in the community. But we read that he sees Jesus, he falls at his feet, and pleads earnestly with him. It's with a large crowd, plenty of witnesses. And some have suggested that this is a rather undignified posture for Jairus to take. After all, he's a ruler of the synagogue. He's a man of standing in the community. But he falls at Jesus' feet and pleads with him. He has one concern, one concern only. My little daughter is dying. The form used is a diminutive, 
as much as to say, uh, my baby or my little girl. Uh, Mark tells us, uh, Luke tells us that she was an only child. Mark doesn't tell us. But he will tell us later, she's 12 years old. Um, I just suspect that most 12-year-old girls would not want to be known as the little daughter, my little daughter. But she is precious to Jairus. And he cares for her. And he pleads with Jesus to come. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Jesus' response, he went with him. But on the way to the house of Jairus, something else happens. Um, Verse 24, the second half, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Again, this is important. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people Uh, crowding around you or against you his disciples answered and yet you can ask who touched me but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it then the woman sorry then the woman knowing what had happened to her came and fell at her feet at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth he said to her daughter your faith has healed you go in peace be freed and be freed from your suffering. Things to consider here. There's an interruption. Jesus is on his way to do a miracle at the house of Jairus. Um, But there's an interruption. This shouldn't surprise us. And I, I think Jesus was not at a loss as to what to do. This is something, if you go through the Gospels and just, you know, mark down every time Jesus was interrupted. Um, While teaching, We saw this in chapter 2. Someone has dropped down through the ceiling. While praying, the disciples come and say, hey, everyone's looking for you. While he is traveling, while he's sleeping in a boat, Jesus is going to the house of Jairus and he is interrupted. Because there's a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Three things to consider. Her health has truly been affected by this condition. We're told in verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. I don't think that this is an indictment of Jewish medicine in the first century, that somehow these doctors were quacks um, who just wanted to take her money. But you know what? They did take her money. As a result... She was out of money. She lost her health. She lost her wealth. And she got worse. She wasn't getting better. So this is a sad situation. But there's one more thing. If we don't know the Old Testament, we will lose this. She was cut off from society. In Leviticus 15, we read, When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. 
When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has a discharge, just as in the days of her period. For 12 years, this woman has been considered ritually unclean. And anybody who touches her is unclean until sunset. She is, in many ways, almost the same status as a leper. For 12 years, this has been her state. But she had a plan. She'd heard about Jesus, and she thought, if I can touch his clothing, I will be healed. She thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And I don't think we should see this as an act of desperation, or that she thought that Jesus was some type of magician with magical power. Uh, It is, in fact, an act of faith, which Jesus will confirm. We'll see in a few minutes. Um, Imperfect faith, yeah, but doesn't that describe the rest of us? I mean, who has perfect faith? It's an amazing act of faith to think that merely touching the clothing of Jesus would bring about the restoration of her health. There's no question she wanted to do this on the slide. She didn't want to make a big production. She was in the crowd. She didn't want anyone to notice. Um, but she did act on her faith. And she touched and she was healed immediately. Verse 29. Remember, immediately is one of the key word in the book of Mark. Immediately her bleeding stopped. She felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. See, she had not only had this condition, she was in great suffering. And it ends immediately. So that's a great story, right? But it's not enough. Jesus noticed. Verse number 30. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Um, It's a personal preference, but I like the King James here. It says that he perceived that virtue had gone out from him that he was aware of what had happened. It raises a lot of questions. Did did Jesus' clothing have power? No. Did Jesus know what had happened? And I would say, yes, he did. Then why did he ask, who touched my clothes? To which I would say, consider that God is always asking questions. It begins in Genesis, where he asks Adam, where are you? And then we have a series of questions. And again, if you're reading through the Gospels, um, look at the interruptions. But look at the times Jesus asked questions. We would expect him to be giving answers, but he asked questions to draw people out. And so the the woman is revealed. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. Did Jesus not know what had happened? Did he not know this particular woman had been healed? Of course he did. The woman, knowing she had been healed, fell at his feet and told the whole truth. Trembling with fear. Not quite sure why she was trembling with fear. Could it be that she was admitting her condition as well as admitting her action? I'm sorry, but I I thought I could sneak in and be healed secretly. But what does Jesus say to her? 
He's on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus. And what does he say to this woman? Daughter. That's interesting, isn't it? He's on the way to the house of Jairus for his daughter. But he says to this woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be healed from your suffering. She had acted in faith and as a result, she was healed. Again, I would point out that her faith was quite imperfect. She sought to do it secretly. So the question then comes up, why does Jesus make a big deal of revealing that something had happened? I mean, is this something to put in his CV? You know, all the people he had healed and here's this woman who had had this condition for 12 years. Um, I would suggest several reasons why Jesus made, you know, made her basically come forward. First of all, he did not want her to think that her healing was a result of some impersonal force, some impersonal power, some magical power. He wants her to know that he knew what had happened. This is something that happened between two people. Okay? Secondly, he wanted her to recognize her faith, that she had in fact believed that if she touched his clothing, she would be healed, and she acted on that belief. I don't know if it's possible, but perhaps in her excitement and in her joy of being healed, she might have forgotten what it was like before, and she might have forgotten, oh yeah, I did believe. That's why I touched his clothing. But thirdly, I would suggest he wanted her to complete the circle, as one commentator put it. And what is the circle? We read in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. The psalmist, in this case it was Asaph, saw it this way. We call on the Lord in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers us, and we are to respond in gratitude. You will honor me. And one might protest, but Damon, it doesn't say gratitude or thanksgiving. Read the whole psalm, okay? Get to the last verse of the psalm. He who sacrifices thank offerings honors me. To honor God is, in fact, to give thanks. And the woman needed to do this. Yes, she's healed, but that's only part of what's happening. She needs to recognize her faith. She needs to recognize this is not some impersonal thing that happened. It is, in fact, a personal interaction that she's healed, and she needs to give thanks. In Luke 17, we are told of Jesus healing 10 lepers. Let me read it to you. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. It's another one of those interruptions while Jesus is traveling. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. That is, they were healed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. This woman needed to give thanks. She needed to complete the circle. The nine lepers didn't do that. They're just so thrilled they were healed and who wouldn't be? But they needed to give thanks. 
Okay, now let's go back to Jairus because it's been an interruption, the story of the woman. Um, Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, apparently to the woman, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in to where the child was. Just stop there for a moment and consider what we've read. Some men have come and told Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Obviously, we know more than these men did, okay? We know how it turns out. But it does seem rather callous. Your daughter's dead. Don't, Don't bother the teacher anymore. It's a very, very n- narrow view of things, but they saw the teacher as only someone who could teach, but not who could do anything else. Let's say, for example, that he did not raise her from the dead. He could be of comfort to the, the parents. But it's like, no, she's gone. Don't, don't, don't bother Jesus anymore. I see this rather cold-hearted. And then when Jesus comes, there are people who are crying, they are wailing, They are weeping, and he's like, why all the commotion? The child is not dead, but asleep. And the people who are crying and wailing laugh at him. Some translations laughed him to scorn. Not to be cold, but hey, the kid's dead, okay? That's why we're crying. They are as cold-hearted, as hard-hearted, I would say, as the men who brought the news to Jairus. Peter, James, and John are the disciples that go with him. This is the first time, by the way, instead of calling him Simon, he's called Peter. Um, Verse 40, but they laughed at him. He put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in there where the child was. He took the child or took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, or in the other translations, kumi, Talitha kumi which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. By the way, this is Aramaic, and Mark is writing in Greek, and he's probably writing to a Roman audience. So he wants to tell them this is what Jesus said in Aramaic, and this is what it means. Verse 42, immediately, there's another immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus doesn't want an audience in this particular case beyond the parents and the three disciples. And he takes her by the hand and he tells her, little girl, get up. Seems rather appropriate. Jairus had referred to her as my little daughter. And immediately, again, that key word, the girl stood up and walked around. It shows the fullness of the healing. She doesn't just open her eyes and look around. She actually gets up and walks around. And they are completely astonished. 
which makes sense, wouldn't you be? He gives instructions. First of all, don't tell anybody about this. And I would just say on some level, this seems rather impractical. If you have all people in another room saying she's dead and then she comes out alive, well, it's not something that you could exactly hide. But what Jesus did in taking her by the hand and telling her, little girl, get up, um, that he didn't want people to know. And he said, give her something to eat. And this, I think, is very practical. Something wonderful has happened. She's been healed, but she still needs something to eat. In Acts chapter 9, we find a story that parallels this one. And let me read it to you. Uh, This is Acts 9, beginning of verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas. Both names mean gazelle, okay? I think I'm going with Tabitha, okay? Who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so the disciples heard, when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the windows stood around. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. There again, sent out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, "Tabitha, get up." In Aramaic, this would be Tabitha kumi. Not Talitha, but Tabitha, Kume. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called all the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This is a parallel thing of the healing of this young woman and the, heal, or the, the raising of this young woman to life and the raising of Tabitha or Dorcas. Now let's go to chapter 6, here back in Mark. This is a story that we find much earlier in Luke. The way that Luke writes it, we think it happens right after the temptations, but it actually doesn't. This is when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, back to his hometown. Verse 1. Jesus left there, that's Capernaum, and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who, many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to him, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, as a prophet without honor. He did not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. This event is recorded both in Matthew 13 and in Luke 4. And the chronology might throw us off, um, but it shouldn't. This is later in his ministry. He has the disciples. When he goes to Nazareth, the disciples are with him. 
Okay? And the people have two views after they hear him teaching or preaching in the synagogue. One is surprise, and then the, the second reaction is that of belittling or demeaning him. Where did this man get these things? And what's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? And then we read, and they took offense at him. Eugene Peterson has done uh, a translation, but it's more than that, of, of scripture based on the original languages. Um, and this is how he puts this particular event. Um, we had no idea he was this good. How did he get so wise all of a sudden, get such ability? But in the next breath, they were cutting him down. He's just a carpenter, Mary's boy. We've known him since he was a kid. We know his brothers, James, Justice, Jude, and Simon, and his sisters. Who does he think he is? They tripped over what little they knew about him and fell, sprawling. And they never got any farther. They were offended by him. One would think, hey, it's, it's a hometown boy made good. You know, he's done well. No. It's like, who does he think he is? The common English Bible, interestingly, puts it this way. They were repulsed by him and fell into sin. And then Jesus tells them, you know, it's only in his hometown among his relatives in his own house that a prophet is without honor. It's not to say that he was honored everywhere else, okay? But in his own hometown, he was not honored as a prophet, which, by the way, means that Jesus is announcing that he is a prophet, right? Prophet is no honor in his hometown. And the result is found in verses 5 and 6. He could do no miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. When one compares the story of the woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, the people of Nazareth truly had no faith. But we shouldn't imagine that their lack of faith was stronger than Jesus' ability to heal. It was that he would not act with power or with grace in the lives of those who did not or who refused to believe. And so he left. He was amazed at their lack of faith. He did, in fact, heal a few people. And I would say these are the people who, in fact, did believe. But as a whole, town of Nazareth, like, yeah, who does this guy think he is? It's really quite remarkable. And then very briefly, we'll close with this. In verses 7 through 13, Lord willing, we'll come back to this. He sends out the 12. Verse 7. Calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Quickly and briefly, these are specific instructions given to the 12. This is a particular place, a particular time. 
Jesus sends out the 12, and I would argue only in Galilee, not down into Judea and certainly not across the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Matthew's account says, do not go among the Gentiles or the Samaritans. Okay, so this is very localized. One commentator has referred to this, these as emergency instructions for a swift and dangerous mission, not a program for the continuing life of the church after Easter. You say, dangerous? Oh, when we get to the next passage about Herod, you'll, you'll, you'll find out about dangerous. But it's basically, don't take, you got a staff, you're walking sick, go. Go out there and preach and heal. And what are we going to do for food? We'll stay in someone's house. And as long as you're in town, stay at that house. Don't move from house to house. Um, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Uh, wear sandals, but don't bring an extra tunic, and, you know, an extra piece of clothing. Um, I find it interesting that for the most part, the church has not followed these instructions because this is something given specifically to the 12, which is right. Except for the part about shaking the dust off your feet. Um, that seems to have been done throughout church history. Like, it's just symbolic to say, that's, that's it, I have washed my hands of you. So the disciples follow the instructions. They go out, they preach that people should repent. They drove out many evil spirits. And they anointed many sick people with oil. This last part is different from what Jesus did. Jesus touched people. Um, and here they are putting oil on them. Um, we'll look at this, Lord willing, when we come back to it. Because um, the question comes up, where'd they get the oil? Because when Jesus sent them out, he didn't say, oh, make sure you take some oil with you to anoint the, the sick. What does this all mean and what should we take from it? Does Jesus care? Does the Father care? The answer is yes, as seen in the two miracles, the healing of the woman who for 12 years suffered and the healing, the raising of the, the girl from the dead who was 12 years old. Her life had ended after 12 years and now it is returned to her. The woman had suffered for 12 years and now normality is restored and returned to her. These are wonderful stories. I find them deeply moving. But we should not imagine that the healing, that healing is the only way in which God can show his care. That if we say, well, if God really cared, he would heal. Or if God really cared, he would do what I ask. He didn't for Paul. Paul asked three times for this physical affliction to be removed. And God didn't say no. He simply said, my grace is sufficient. God does, in fact, care for us. And we are not the ones who get to define what that care looks like. We might imagine, oh, if God really cared about me, this is what he would do. That's not for us. That's not our call. But he truly does care. And then the whole business of faith. And I think we might get a little bit nervous about this because of uh, faith healers and things like that. Um, faith, in fact, opens the door that God can work in our lives. We trust, we believe that he can do that. 
unbelief, like we see in Nazareth, slams the door in his face and says, I want no part of it. It is God's power, God's care that brings about everything in our lives. Um, but the question is, are we going to open the door and say, I trust you? Are we going to slam the door and say, no, I, you didn't do what I wanted. All this time I thought you were there, I thought you would answer my prayer, you would do what I wanted, and you didn't. And so I don't believe anymore. Well, it's not that your unbelief is stronger than his power. It is that you have simply closed the door in your life. We saw, we've seen this already in the, in the Gospel of Mark, that those who would not believe, Jesus spoke to them in parables. And those who were guilty of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit could not be forgiven. The power does not rest in us, but in God. And he cares. He cares deeply. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for these stories, these events in the life of Jesus. How moving they are, his, his care. That he wants to know who this woman is. He wants her to acknowledge what has happened. And he cares about Jairus, his wife, his daughter, and raises the daughter from the dead. These are wonderful examples of your care. But may we not be guilty of somehow boxing you in and saying that you can only show your love and your care in the way that we determine. You do care for us. Our time here on earth is not unlimited. There will come a day when, unless the Lord comes back, we will die. As we get older, we get weaker. Various infirmities come to our lives. You still care for us. May we remember that. Give us the grace to trust you. To know that you know what is best in our lives. Again, I thank you for your word. For this time we could spend together studying it. May we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place, as we walk through the world in the coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.